So I want to start you off with a little bit of a riddle this morning. When is the miracle in a miracle story not the point of the miracle story? Let me say that again, right? Because I use the word miracle a lot. So I know it's early, coffee's still kicking in. So when, when is it that the miracle that takes place in a miracle story really isn't the point of the miracle story? And the answer is, we're going to see today, is in Mark chapter 10, when blind Bartimaeus receives his sight. I'd really love for you to grab a Bible with me. We're, almost always I go straight, but we're going to kind of start in the middle, go back, and then jump forward in the text that we need to deal with today. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And uh, if you didn't happen to bring a Bible with you, there should be one right underneath your chair. And you'll find our text today on page 856 in the Bibles that are underneath your chair. And we're in Mark chapter 10, which is the second gospel, first gospel that was actually written for us. And we've been working through the book of Mark, trying to get familiar with the story of Jesus, the life of Christ. But with that, we've also been trying to make sure that we discover the real Jesus, right? And what we're going to see today in our experience with this text that we're going to look at It highlights for us the fact that it really is a challenge for us, even as God's people, to make sure that we fall in love with the real Jesus, not just the Jesus that we would love to have. And so it's a big challenge. And so I want to start off with just a section here at the end of Mark chapter 10. And then I want to go backwards, because if you're, you're looking on the back of your uh, handout for this morning, we do have a place for you to take some notes. And our text starts well before verse 46 of chapter 10. But we're going to start with blind Bartimaeus and kind of work our way backwards to make a point. Then we'll leap forward to deal with some of the stuff in, ch- in chapter 11, just because we've got to get through some stuff in order to make sure we get to Easter on Easter morning, right? So that's where we want to be, chapter 16, in just a few weeks. So... Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's following the pathway that almost all Jews from the region of Galilee would have taken. They would have avoided the area of Samaria that lied between Jerusalem and Galilee by traveling out to the east, and then they would have started their ascent, their climb over, it's over half a mile climb upward, over 20 miles, to get from, to get up to Jerusalem. They would have passed through the city of Jericho to get there. And that's where our text takes place today, in in verse 46. Jesus is making his way through Jericho. He's entering into the road, if you will, that's made famous by the story of the Good Samaritan. And while he's passing through the city, he has an encounter. Just follow along with me as I read these verses for you out loud. So they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar was sitting by the road. And when he heard it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. So here's this blind guy sitting on the side of the road. He hears the murmur. You know, all these people are headed to Jerusalem because the Passover's coming. Big crowds, caravans, that kind of stuff. Kind of like a mini parade that's not organized. And, and he hears that in the mix is Jesus the Nazarene, the miracle worker. And so he just said, you know what? He's just sitting on the side of the road. He can't see Jesus. He's blind, right? So he just, he just, he says, son, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And just goes on and on and on and on, right? And so some of the people tell him, many people told him to keep quiet. 
because he's crying all the, but he was crying all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man. And he said to him, have courage, get up. He's calling for you. And he threw off his coat and he jumped and he, and he came to Jesus. And Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And he uses this, this word of respect, even above teacher, says, Rabboni, the blind man told him, I want to see. I want to see, right? I, I want to see. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he could see and began to follow him on the road. And there's that word immediately again. It's one of Mark's favorite terms. You know, it's a, it, his is a gospel of action. Immediately he could see and he began to follow him on the road. Now this is just one of a number of miracles that Jesus does in the book of Acts. We've seen numerous miracles take place prior to arriving at this place. And it's interesting that Mark stops in the middle of this journey to Jerusalem, and he tells us a story about a guy just getting his sight back. And obviously, anybody having their sight restored, a miracle, is noteworthy. But with all the other miracles that they don't tell us about, why is this placed here? What is the message for us? Because really, what's drawn out, it's clearly part of Mark's testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He has the power of the healing of God in his hands because he is God. But his message is much more than that. Now, I want to need to back you up to make part of this point. So just bear with me, right? You know, this isn't your typical kind of thing. But bear up. Well, we got the chapter 8 of Gospel of Mark. We saw a slight shift in Mark's emphasis. From chapters 1 through the end of chapter 7, it was really about Jesus in the masses, Jesus in the public, right? And it was his teaching and his, and his ministry to, to the crowd. When he gets to chapter 8, it's, it's, it's not just exclusive to the disciples, but you see, see a clear shift that Jesus is trying to clearly invest and bring his disciples to a new level of understanding so they're ready for what's about to happen. And some of you remember back to that point where chapter 8 starts out with the feeding of the 4,000. And it's the second feeding in the Gospel of Mark. It takes place in an area that's really outside the confines of basic Israel. So it's a symbolic of the fact that God's going to feed the world, going to feed the Gentiles, all the rest of us. The Gospel's going to be for all. But right after that, if you remember, because I'm not going to go back and read it. If you remember, Jesus healed a guy, gave him his sight, Right? But it didn't happen the first time. Remember that story? The guy, you know, Jesus has this encounter with this guy, and he, you know, he's crying out again from a crowd, and Jesus takes him aside, and he touches his eyes, and then he says, what do you see? He says, well, I, I, I see men, but they kind of look like trees, right? He's got blurry vision. He can't see very well. And Jesus touches him again, right? And his message to the disciples is, you think you see. You think you understand, Right? but you really don't. And you need to let me clear up your vision so you really see who I am. So the two-stage miracle is a message in and of itself. Here, as we get to the last story before we enter into the last week of Christ, Jesus is still saying to his disciples, you need to have your blindness fixed. 
You need to really want to see. And you need to ask me in faith to give you sight. Let me see how I make that case from here, right? So we need to back up a little bit. So we need to go back to verse 32. Because what we're going to see in verses 32 up through the story of blind Bartimaeus is that even though Jesus has been teaching his disciples over and over again, they just don't get it, right? Jesus had started out the section by saying, you guys think you see, and you see a little bit, but you don't see very well, and you need to let me keep teaching you, keep growing you, touching your eyes and giving you the spiritual clarity into who I am and what am I about and what the mission of God is and, and who God is supposed to be in my life and all these kinds of things. And here at the end, they're, they're really not any better off than when they started. Let's pick this up, right? Verse 32. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were astonished, but those who followed were afraid. Taking the 12 aside, notice the privateness, right? Again, taking the 12 aside, he began to tell them things that would happen to them. He says, listen. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, it's a reference to himself, will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death. Then they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. First time that that aspect of it, being handed over to the Romans, is ever indicated by Jesus. Then they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, and they're going to mock him, and they're going to spit on him, and they're going to flog him, and then they're going to kill him, all of which took place on Good Friday. And he will rise after three days. So there's a prediction of the suffering of the servant who has come. Now what's interesting is that this is not the first one that's taken place in chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's not even the second one. It is the third one. If you look back and you look at chapter 9, right? There's two different places where Jesus begins to teach his disciples about what lays ahead of them in the future, right? And he's laying out the fact that he hasn't come to be a conquering king who's going to rise up glory to its He has come to be a redeemer for all. And guess what? They don't get it at all. <laughs> Not, they've been taught once, taught twice, taught three times, and they still don't get it. Look with me. So Jesus just got done teaching this, right? And so you see this case. They Once, twice, three times, they still don't see it. They need their sight fixed. They need to come to Jesus and say, help me see. I want to see. Give me sight. Look at these follows around follow, as we follow up. So right after he gets done teaching this stuff, it says James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him. And they said, teacher, we want you to do something for us. Right? So they're saying, we we want a blank check. We just want you to sign the check, and we'll take it. We'll fill it out, right? We want you to do something for us. And Jesus said, well, well, what do you want me to do for you? Right? And they said, allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in glory. And what's at the root of this request is they think Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and he's going to set up his kingdom. And somebody's going to be the vice president. Right? And somebody's going to be the chief of staff. Those are the jobs we want. Does that sound like they understood what Jesus just said in verses 32 forward? 
They don't get it at all, do they? And how many times have you heard it? Once, twice, three times? And every time he gives them a little bit more, this progressive revelation. And here they are like, you know what? We hear this, but you know what? We, we want to be vice president and chief of staff, right? We, we want to have the positions of prominence, right? And look what Jesus says to them. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with a baptism I am baptized with? And, and, and both baptism and, and, and the idea of the cup can, be, can have a sense of, of celebration or joy, but more often than not, it has to do with the cup of suffering and the baptism of suffering. So it says, can you really participate? And they said, we're able to. And, and I think what they're saying is, we know that it's going to be a battle for you to have victory in Jerusalem, but we're prepared to fight. Right, and then we want to be the pre- vice president and the chief of staff, right? And, and that kind of idea. And Jesus says, "You know, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with." And I think that prediction is something that flows through them to us. All of us participate in the hardship, the persecution, the the rejection by the world, if you will, that goes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. But he says, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those who have been prepared for. Jesus says, you know, this isn't, when I, when I chose to leave heaven as the son of God, part of what I gave up in humbling myself was the right for this. To, now, that, that's the father's responsibility. I have voluntarily surrendered that. He says, it's not, it's not my privilege to give to you that. Now, verse 41, the other 10 guys really show themselves to be stalwarts, Right? So when the other 10 guys heard this, they said, man, why didn't I think of that first? They, they just became indignant. What are you trying to help? They're upset. And so all of them, all 12 of them, even though they've heard about the sufferings of Jesus once, they've heard it about it twice, they've heard it about it three times, they don't get it. And so when Jesus is going through Jericho, and he has a chance to point out once again the importance of sight and bringing that, he, he, he responds to the call of Bartimaeus and he brings him front and center. And he says, what do you want from me? He said, man, I want to see. And then when, and he says, your faith is what has made you well. It's your faith that allows you to see. And, and it's, and it is a message to his disciples that they need to come to him in faith to see. But he's not, that's, that's not the only thing that they misconceive. We follow along. So when they get done, he says, Jesus called them over and he said to them. So, you know, you get the idea. He's teaching all of them. And then James and John kind of hurry up in front and, 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 and make this request. But the other 10 are kind of lagging behind as they're making their journey along. And then the other 10 hear about it. And they're all snickering one another and pointing to James and John. And, that. and Jesus said, all right, all right, guys, come, come gather up, right? Another time for another team. He says, you know that those who regard it as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And their men of high position exercise power over them. But it's not like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. If you want to elevate yourself in the kingdom of God, find more and more people to serve. Right? And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. And here's part of of Mark's comment about why Jesus really is the Son of God, the Messiah. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. Jesus performed the ultimate form of service, being sinless, giving his life for all of us who are sinners. That's the ultimate form of service. That makes him the greatest of all, right? And with that, he's really the son of God. But again, this is not the first time this theme has been dealt with in chapters 8 through 10. When I was in Rwanda, Pastor Steve talked to you guys about the fact Jesus said to the disciples, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it, right? So he, he, he's been rattling the cage of what it really means to be successful. And so here they are. They're on the brink of the last week of the life of Christ, and they don't get it. And Jesus pulls them aside and says, you know what? You need to come to me and ask in faith, desiring to be able to see. And see, what they misconceive, they misconceive who Jesus really is, what his mission is all about, and how they fit into that mission. And, and, and so this, this, this story of blind Bartimaeus, certainly Bartimaeus goes home happy, right? And, and, and he's been impacted by the goodness and by the power of Christ. But the real message is to the disciples and to all of us. We think we see Jesus. We think we see the real Jesus. But it's so easy to misconceive what does it mean for who, about who Jesus is and what does it mean about what we do as the people of God. And we need to be open for Jesus to continue to give us sight into who he is. Is that making any sense? And, and, and these two areas, right, that are focused upon in this text are are really the, 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 some of the greatest areas that we really struggle with, right? What kind of a Messiah is Jesus, right? And, and, and what does it mean for you and I to be successful in life? Those two areas are, are huge pieces for us that we have all these misconceptions about, right? Because there's many ways in which we're still fighting for position rather than positions of service, right? We're still fighting for privilege rather than the ability to be able to sacrifice to others. We're, we're still kind of fighting for to be in a position of prerogative, right? Rather than being in a position where we're giving. And when we think about Jesus, we, we, we often think about what he can do for us, how he can make my life better, how he can make me happier, right? So he can give me the life that I want. And that's not what he came to do at all. He came to make it possible for you to have the life that God wants to give to you. And we have these misconceptions about who Jesus is, what he's about, and, and what role we play in his kingdom. And Jesus is trying to say to his disciples, man, you need to come to me just like Barnabas. And the thing that needs to be on your lips when I ask the question, what do you want from me, needs to be, man, I want to see. I want to see. <laughs> and then in faith, receive that sight and have it be changed. It's powerful stuff that's is going on. But So let me ask you this. So, you know, again, we, we need to move on just a little bit. Does it matter? What are the implications of you and I not seeing Jesus right? And we see part of that emerge in the text that's ahead of us. And we're going to move through a couple of sections here in chapter 11. The first part is the triumphal entry, right? You guys didn't know it was Palm Sunday, did you? Right? It's Palm Sunday today. Jesus enters into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. And that's what we find at the beginning of chapter 11. But it's the things that come afterwards that show us the dangers of not clearly seeing who God is, how God works, and how you and I fit into that plan. 
just follow along for, with a couple of things for me as I read along. And, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on the triumphal entry. Again, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark with this filter that Mark's passion as he sorts through all the things that Jesus said and did and the way that he lived his life, he sorts through all of that stuff and he's trying to make this clear argument that Jesus really is the Son of God and to show what it really takes to be his follower. And so the triumphal entry is a part of showing who Jesus is. And so it says, when they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage in Bethany, Near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, says, you know, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find a young donkey tied there in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And send it back here right away. So they went out and they found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing said, well, you know, what are you doing? Untying the donkey. They said, well, they answered him just as Jesus had said, so they let him go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus, and they threw their robes on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And and then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven! And he went into Jerusalem, and he looked, and looking in the temple complex, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, so just real quickly on the triumphal entry, because we always try to do justice to the text, right? Because we, we really want to understand what God has said to us. This is, this is clearly a fulfillment of what the people expected from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's a messianic prophecy. I just taught the book of Zechariah to the guys in Rwanda. And, and this idea of God. People arrived in Jerusalem by donkey every single day, right? This is not unusual, right? But the fact that it's a part of a pilgrimage on Passover with a prophetic teacher who's drawn a crowd and he intentionally sets himself up on a donkey to ride in with these praises is clearly a statement that Jesus is making to the world, I am the Messiah. And i got to tell you, the religious leaders don't miss it because it's a clear statement. And Mark's saying it's a correct statement. And that's because Jesus really is the Son of God. But then he picks up. So he looks around the temple complex, and then the next day when they came out from Bethany, so he's going back into the city, he was hungry. And after seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, as he should have. Because in the spring, the fig tree should have leaves on it, but it wouldn't have any fruit yet. The fruit wouldn't apply to like July, you know, June, July, you know, that kind of area would start to come in. So it shouldn't be anything on it. But Jesus goes to it, he sees the, 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 it's got the leaves, but no fruit. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season. And he said, well, when may no one ever eat fruit from you again? And his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of the selling, those selling doves and, and would not permit anyone to carry the goods through the temple complex. Now, the temple complex was humongous, right? That when it was finally finished, you know, Herod's temple that replaced the temple that was built after the exile, which was a replacement for Solomon's temple. The, the temple was 1,000 feet by 1,600 feet. 
That's about 35 acres, right? That's bigger than our piece of property here at Hope Chapel. We have 26 acres. The temple itself, the temple proper, was 350 feet by 575 feet. So think of the size of our parking lot and then just about double it, and that's what the temple was inside of the temple complex. And it had become a bustling place of commerce because it was necessary to take your Roman coins and get shekels so that you could actually give it to the temple because that's what was required in the law. And you needed stuff to sacrifice to so the stuff that you needed to buy. And, and before the temple was built, they used to do all of that outside, but it was just a whole lot more convenient to do it inside. And we don't like the Gentiles anyway, so we'll just do it where they usually would worship. We'll just do it in the court of the Gentiles. And so it was just this bustling marketplace with a little bit of worship thrown into the mix, right? And Jesus comes in, and he won't let anybody go through. And even though the Roman guards are watching from the corner tower of the temple complex, and the religious leaders have authority over the temple complex, Jesus is so popular with the people, they won't touch him. So he began to teach them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And then Peter (laughs) remembered it, and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, (laughs) that tree that you cursed. You know, there was one of these days where Jesus really needed the Snickers, right, you know, to get back into that. You know, he was making a point. That that fig tree you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Now, I don't want to draw a direct line from our spiritual blindness and not really seeing who Jesus is and what does it really mean to walk or to be successful in the kingdom of God. But I do want to point this out. I, I think that part of what you, you can, if you look and say, is that me? There are two things that you're going to see take place in your life. One is you're, you may look spiritually healthy, but you're actually going to be fruitless. That's the fig tree. And that's the point Jesus is making by cursing the fig tree. He's looking at the nation of Israel. They're supposed to be the people of God. They're supposed to be the ones who are sold out to being the blessing of God to the nations. And they've made faith all about them. They look the part, but there is no spiritual fruit. And Jesus says, that's not going to last. And when you and I, if we want to look at our lives and say, you know what? Yeah, I'm the kind of person who gets up early on a Sunday morning and goes off to church, right? You know, and I read my Bible, but there really isn't a sense of spiritual mission and passion and a real sense of godliness or righteousness in our lives, then we're just like the fig tree. We, we look healthy, but there isn't any fruit. And when you and I misconceive about who Jesus is and what our role is in the kingdom and giving ourselves away, we are fruitless people. And we don't see the fruit come in our lives. The second thing I want you to see is about this worship piece with a temple complex. Now, you know, there's a lot you could do with the temple, you know, cleansing of the temple and this and that. And a lot of the commentators like to say, it's not so much that Jesus is trying to cleanse the temple. He's trying to just repudiate the worship that goes on there because it's not really based in, in faith. It's not really based in, 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 in allegiance to God. But what you see happening in this thing is that they have taken the necessities of worship and they've made them the focus of worship because they needed shekels to be able to give their offering to the temple. 
They needed doves and other kinds of things to be able to offer their sacrifices. They needed all this stuff, but it had become the focus of it. And God was just kind of on the side. And it's really interesting. I think, you know, you can make a lot of applications. Maybe your life groups will chat about this some this week. I, I, I don't know. But, but I think one of the biggest challenges that we face today in the same realm is that we come to worship and we ask the question, what am I going to get? And worship should be about what are you going to give? And I'm not talking about just breaking out your wallet and putting money in the plate. I'm talking about what are you going to give to God? when you come to worship. And when we make worship about what am I going to get? Is this going to make me feel better? Is this going to help me? Is this, you know, am I going to be uplifted and filled with joy? It's all about what I get. We're really misconstruing what worship is all about because worship is always God-focused. And the blessings come from having things seen in right perspective, right? So we've walked through a lot of stuff today. And here, so here, my, my sermon title for this morning was this, Think Twice. If you think you really know who Jesus is, and you think you really know what it means to be successful in the kingdom of God, make sure you think twice and get it right. My invitation to you today and to me is to, first of all, have faith in God. If you've never personally and intentionally and specifically asked Christ to forgive you as the Redeemer, and to enter into your life by faith, have faith in God. Start there. Have faith in God. The last words of Jesus in verse 22, have faith in God. Because without that, all the rest of this will never come into focus. You'll never have that eyesight. The second thing is, I hope all of us will have the passion. When we look at Jesus, we'll say, Jesus, I want to see. I want to see, and that our faith will make us well. Let's pray together as we conclude our service time. God, thank you for your word today. There's a lot that we ran through today. Thank you for the credible things that Jesus did, the miracles, the teachings. But Father, let us see it all in context today and how it speaks to our own lives. That even though we are like the disciples walking with Jesus, we still need to see. Father, give us faith, give us sight, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.